Hello and welcome to the 12th episode of CRCC Spotlights. Um, this episode today is going to focus on Section 90A of McLean's in the context of some of the investigations that we here have been working on. And I'm joined today to talk about that with the 90A guru, Chloe Morris, um, supervising associate in our litigation team, and Mia Shovelwood-Smith, a supervising associate in our insurance and construction team, who's going to speak to some of the related issues that we also have to deal with, such as DNO coverage. So thank you so much for joining, both of you. It's great to have you. Um, so um, I'm going to be totally honest, Bowie, and you know, I know we've spoken about Section 98 claims before, and you've explained it to me before, but can you just explain to me again, in, in sort of plain terms, what it what it actually is, what the claim involves? Sure, Helen. So it's a cause of action that gives investors at large um, an opportunity to hold public UK listed companies to account for any misleading published information. So that's information that's in their um, annual reports or trading updates. And the cause of action crystallises where the claimants can show that the directors knew that information was misleading and that that information then caused, well, the investors relied on it and it caused them a loss. So that's um, FISMA Section 98. It came in in 2006 and um, it's quite underutilised. So we, like you said it's underutilised. I think the reason we chose to speak about this today is because we're actually seeing quite a sort of a rise in the deployment of these claims in the context of some of the cases that I might work on on the criminal side. So we've seen, haven't we, criminal investigations or even... Um, uh, well, yes, let's say criminal investigations underway, um, potentially, you know, the public arena, the SFA makes an announcement that it's investigating a certain company or even, you know, prosecute somebody. And that then forms the basis for a section 98. And it's not an exact crossover, is it, Chloe? Then I think there's, even though they might be about the same facts, there is a yeah. difference. Yeah. I think that's the case. Often these all, so uh, the fact pattern that may give rise to a Section 98 claim is a similar fact pattern that may give rise to criminal investigation and proceedings. So not only that, but what we tend to find is that you know, investors will obviously know that they've suffered a loss, but they aren't able to establish the kind of things that a Section 98 claim needs, so direct to knowledge. So what a parallel criminal investigation gives them, and particularly if that then goes on to charges, is sort of, um, at least an initial proof that somebody in the business knew that naughtiness was going on. So that's why I think you often see uh, you know, a criminal investigation proceeding first, followed by a Section 98 claim as sort of drips and drabs of information go out into the public. I guess it might make it easier, mightn't it? I mean, if you've got um, a company that has been charged with a bribery offence and as part of the part of the charge, it involves a, a directing mind and will giving rise to the company's liability. I guess it makes it easier to say, well, if on the criminal standard, um, the SFO believes the company is liable for bribery, then uh, that same director's knowledge might give rise to that Section 90A liability. But Mia, I mean, I know it's not um, it's not any you know, exact crossover with the DNO world, but it obviously working on these criminal cases, um, with or with or without a section ninety eight component, often involves a whole host of D 
DNO coverage issues doesn't it? I mean, what are the sort of common issues that come up? What are the sort of key touch points of insurance that you see? Yeah, so DNO insurance, as you know, operates quite broadly. So it operates where a DO director or officer um, has committed a, a managerial wrongful act. So a, a wrongful act whilst in that alleged, role. Alleged, Mia, alleged to Sorry, <laughs> alleged, alleged until, <laughs> until proven by final non-appealable judgment. Um, so, yes, yeah, so, so, so DNO operates very broadly. And generally, it's most policies will have a conduct exclusion, which excludes from cover um, claims where the director or officer has been found guilty of the, the wording can differ, but often it's, it refers to either fraudulent contact, conduct or more commonly it refers to um, the gaining of personal profit for which they were not legally entitled. Um, it's quite important, I think, if you're looking at, at availability of cover to make sure that your policy, that the conduct exclusion is as, as narrow as possible. Um, and so ideally you'd have that exclusion operating only in the event of a final non-appealable judgment. And so that effectively means that, that directors and officers have the benefit of, of um, defence costs um, for any allegedly <laughs> wrongful <laughs> act. Yeah. Um, so one of the things I think with a Section 98 claim is that in order to make good on it, you need to prove that the director knew um, the information was misleading. So that is a finding of dishonesty. And we've certainly seen um, in the cases that we've worked on that being a real tricky issue to deal with um, that potentially, you know, any settlement conversations that we might be having could trigger um, a voiding of the DNO coverage. Yeah, so I guess yeah. that applies on both sides, doesn't it? Then if you're whether you are involved in representing or whether indeed you're a decision maker on behalf of the company as well as for an individual you just need to very carefully consider the nature of any admissions that might be made whether you're in um, informal negotiations whether you're in some sort of attempt to settle as part of a DPA process or, or anything else I guess the nature of the admissions made by the company and the individuals is absolutely key. Mia is there anything is there anything that sort of can help to to mitigate that on from a sort of practical perspective? Yeah, I think, yeah. I think that's a really key point, um, which is that you'll quite often have parallel proceedings and sometimes it might be in the director's interest to make an early settlement offer to resolve, say, a civil claim that would otherwise then bolster up, say, criminal proceedings or vice versa. Um, and so what, I, what we'd always recommend is, is to think early about how that will impact your cover. And to, and to think early about how you need to loop insurers in, because ultimately insurers will want to reduce the prospect of a successful claim against the director. And they will also want to reduce the prospect of having multiple parallel proceedings against the director. But as a director, what you want to make sure of is that you're not going out and doing this alone and therefore giving your insurers an opportunity to say that you've, um, that you've made an admission and therefore that the cover is pulled. Um, because I think that's a real a real danger, and we've, yeah. we've seen that in practice. That's so. The section ninety eight, the um, claim is being brought against the listed company, but you have this strange sort of duality where, although the claim is against the company, you know the real key people um, and and the people who may have to give evidence are the directors. So those directors may also be in their own personal criminal proceedings. So. There are all the dynamics that you need to be concerned about. And there might, be some, 
Yeah, sorry to Claire, I just say, I think some of the, the really tricky situations that we've seen are ones where you actually also have, because you have these parallel proceedings, you have an information mismatch potentially in terms of um, documents or material that you might have received in one context, which can only be deployed in that context and not outside it, um, but where nevertheless it may or may not be highly relevant to the management of the claim. So I'm not sure that we've ever found any sort of, you know, easy answer to how you manage that risk. I guess it's just um, I mean, you'll correct me if you you found the answer from your side, but I think it's just something you have to be highly conscious of um, and sort of resolve as you go along. Yeah, certainly yeah, Section 98 cases are a real hotbed for you know potential collateral use issues um, because of often ongoing criminal proceedings. Um, I think also these days as well, with the new witness statement reforms, where you have to list out all the documents that you know, you've shown um, shown a witness when helping them prepare their witness statement. That's almost like a real signpost to give to the other side to you know, spot any errors made in collateral use. So it's just something that legal teams need to be really aware of and also sort of help guide their clients mm. um, in what is quite a technical, non-intuitive area. And just on that small point, actually, I think probably what we're what we're seeing or we're advising from the criminal side to be uh, to be prudent and and to look to future-proof your process because you're very likely to be first through the door on the criminal side regardless of whether section 98 claims or other civil claims might follow you might be the first one seen and with this change in the you know the rules where a record must be kept of all documents shown to witnesses uh later stages with witness proofings for example i think it's good practice to put that process in place early doors if you can um, and keep records of when you're showing materials to persons who might end up being witnesses in, in later civil proceedings, including a Section 90A. So that's just a small a small practical point, but um, obviously small fry compared to the sort of the much bigger headache of how you deal with a Section 90A claim or be liaising with insurers about your uh, defence costs and investigation costs. I mean, there's one the one point I've, I think would be interesting to talk about briefly is around this the DPA process because I can quite see that that might end up being a sort of a, you know, the, the, the focus around which all of these different concerns sort of come together um, and I guess my question really maybe for both of you or maybe just for me I don't know see so who who fancies it is um, where you've got uh, a criminal investigation and ultimately potentially in this a company that leads to or enters into a DPA with the SFO, where the statement of facts to which the company has to agree, where the statement of facts makes reference to the acts of individuals, maybe just by reference to documents or maybe just maybe admissions about their conduct, um, where that happens and that then becomes a public document. Can that be relied upon outside of the DPA context in either the Section 90A context or, you know, for, for me or in terms of the um, the DNA coverage, in speaking to maybe claim funds back that have been paid out to the to the insured company? Maybe I can go to Chloe first on that one. Sorry. Um, um, well, we have I think with the DPA public, it can what's what we find with DPAs is that. It, there's a lot of detail in there mm -hmm. and often they go through quite a lot of factual points mm -hmm. 
So whereas the, the admission at the end is not itself um, you know, binding on civil proceedings, there's so much information in the DPA that certainly can be used by claimants mm -hmm. to support um, the facts mm -hmm. uh, that they're trying to plead in civil proceedings. Mm. And Leah, what about what about on the DNA side? Is it sort of read strictly against the company or? Yeah, I mean, I, I'll put my hands up and say I haven't encountered this situation, but I would, I would believe that the DPA would be read just against the company. And so the the, the wording in a DNA cover is pretty strict in terms of it's the director that must admit to liability, um, or, or admit to the the the, the factual pattern that gives rise to the conduct exclusion and you can see from a from a kind of public policy point that you wouldn't want to impute what the company has said against the director because then that would undermine both the director's ability to defend themselves but also the company's ability to enter into these DPAs um, mm. and I think you, you always have kind of to take a step back and see what the purpose of, of DPAs at, at, is which is to try and encourage companies to resolve this to report themselves to get it over um, and I think that's quite a different position than when you're looking at directors who who want to be able to defend themselves and their reputation and the risk of you know being struck off from holding professional um, appointments in future so yeah, that, that makes I was very surprised sense. yeah let's hope that's the case not everyone always accents to be <laughs> included in the courts but um that is really helpful. I think it'd be good to end on um, a practical pointer if we if we have one. I know we've mentioned a couple already, so um, apologies to put you on the spot again. But um, guys, if you want to leap in, have you got any sort of practical takeaways you want to share? Yeah, I think a key one from my perspective is that, as you say, Helen, often the criminal proceedings or criminal investigation starts first. And, you know, totally understandably, a lot of pressure that tends to be, uh, the company's focus, they just shouldn't lose sight of the pattern that often these security claims tend to follow. So when preparing sort of terms of reference or discussing amongst themselves potential strategic points in the criminal proceedings, there should be an eye to the risk of Section 98 claims. Um, and this just helps from a privilege point of view that I won't you know, go into too much detail now, um, but it just will help protect some of those initial discussions um, on the criminal proceedings and retain their privilege in any potential civil claim that gets brought. Yeah, that privilege point you're talking about is a horrible one, isn't it? Um, really sneaky. Um, <laughs> I know we, we won't get into it, but from my understanding, the general gist is that there is a risk that shareholders can procure disclosure from the company of, of what would previously have been or what is privileged legal advice to the company. Um, and that's the risk, the risk that those end up in, in, in the claimant's hands is what, what you're trying to sort of head off there. But that might be that's right. might be one for a whole other episode. Yeah, <laughs> I think it's something that just often surprises clients yeah. is that shareholders can't, uh, sorry, the company can't assert privilege against um, shareholders. And I think my takeaway off the back of what Chloe has said and also my experience with investigations and with trying to sort out sticky bits of DNA at the end of them is to try and take a step back. I think there's a tendency when an investigation happens for everyone to run around 
and want to solve it and want to get to the bottom of it and want to please the regulator. And I think a lot of some really critical thinking about some really unsexy matters like privilege and like insurance needs to be done. And the earlier you can do that and the earlier you can get professional advisors on board to steer you through that, I think will will pay back um, tenfold. But I think there's naturally a, a, a real desire for people to, to to want to work out what, what happened and what the solution is. Um, but you need to keep that keep very much the bigger picture in place in terms of how your insurance operates and what risks you could be exposing yourself to with documents. Not least because above all things, any of these investigations are horrendously expensive. So <laughs> I agree with you, Mia, it's wise to get out in front of it as soon as you possibly can. Um, okay. Thanks so much on the on the massively unsexy subject of money um, and fees, which lawyers obviously love and clients hate. We'll um, we'll finish it there. Um, but thank you again so much. That was brilliant. Um, we got, we could have probably another few episodes out of several of the subtopics there. So thanks for covering so much in a short space of time, and um, see you again soon. <laughs>